0: Welcome to the 24-Week Lecture Series by Dr. Avraham Gileadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 12, An End-Time Assyrian World Conquest. I want to welcome everybody also, and hope we have an enlightening time tonight I pull together some scriptures about an end-time Assyrian world conquest that Isaiah talks about and gives a lot of space to, and also the Assyrian chapters, the chapters of Assyria's invasion of the Promised Land, are a big part of the Isaiah passages that Nephi quotes in the Book of Mormon. So they're there for some reason, since they wrote for our day. Let's see what uh, several visionaries have seen in our day about this, and if it ties in with Isaiah, with the Assyrian invasion of the Promised Land that happened in Isaiah's day, and Isaiah, therefore, is the best source for documenting that time period. This is from Charles D. Evans' vision. I think we already have read parts of it in another context. He says, Earthquakes rent the air in vast chasms which engulfed multitudes. Terrible groanings and wailings filled the air. The shrieks of the suffering were indescribably awful. Waters rushed in from the tumultuous ocean whose very roaring under the mad rage of fierce cyclones was undurable to the ear. Cities were carried away in an instant. Missiles were hurled through the atmosphere at a terrible velocity, and people were carried away upward only to fall. Islands appeared where ocean waves once tossed a gigantic steamer. In other parts, voluminous flames emanating from vast fires rolled with fearful velocity, destroying life and property in their destructive course. This is from A Greater Tomorrow by Julie Rowe. I saw a war starting in the Pacific as well as in the Middle East. The Iranians launched a missile from Libya that hit Israel. I could see that there were mushroom clouds throughout various parts of the United States, the Middle East, Europe and other areas. From There Is No Death by ceremony, at almost the same time and in these same locations as the mushroom clouds, I saw Russian and Chinese troops invading the United States. The Russians were parachuting into many spots along the eastern coast. I also saw them parachuting into Utah. Chinese troops were invading from the west coast near Los Angeles. They were met with resistance from those who had survived the disease and the bombs. I did not see any United States military there at that time. This invasion was part of the nuclear war I had seen earlier, and I knew that similar events were taking place all over the world, as I had seen previously. I did not see much of this war, but it was impressed that it was of short duration, and that the Russian and Chinese armies were defeated and withdrew. Also from a greater tomorrow, I saw Russians parachuting into many spots along the coasts. Missiles were launched, the enemy proceeded, and I was shown that in many cases people were protected by ministering angels, who formed a protective barrier against much of the planned destruction. The foreign troops did successfully enter the country, but many of their missions were thwarted. I saw additional foreign troops land on both coasts of the United States, including Chinese troops and some of what I believe were North Korean troops, large numbers of Russian troops entered the United States through the Alaskan coastline. And on the eastern coast of the United States, a huge world war began. Back to Charles D. Evans. A foreign power had inroded the nation. This is from 1894 or something. And from every human indication it appeared that it is as if it would seize the government and supplant it with monarchy. I stood trembling at the aspect when a power rose in the West which declared itself in favor of the Constitution in its original form, to this suddenly rising power, every lover of constitutional rights gave hearty support. The struggle was fiercely contested, but the stars and stripes floated in the breeze, bidding liberty to all and waving proudly over the land. So this implies, of course, that the Constitution in its original form was not current at the time. This is from Angelic Messages, a book not yet published. The angel and I were standing over the Atlantic Ocean looking into England. Six consecutive attacks within England itself set the country into confusion. At that time, an Islamic military and Russian naval and air force equipment attacked England from the south. England called on her allies, but France was the only nation that responded. However, by the time the French military reached the borders of its own country, France had broken out in revolution and its military was called back to police its own people. From there, war spread to many countries. We also looked over the Pacific Ocean, this is from angelic messages, and could see from Australia to Korea and into the Middle East, I saw that at that time the United States military was spread out in foreign lands. An incident took place in Korea that brought out our remaining Western forces into the Pacific Ocean. Before our military could enter the Korean waters, however, Russia, China, and several other nations destroyed it within a matter of three to four days. Shortly after that, Russia and China invaded America. I went back east to get my father, who lived in Indiana, but when I came to the Mississippi River, I couldn't cross because it had become a large body of water. You notice how all these prophecies or these visions tie in with other visions, such as the visions of glory, where their islands once appeared, and that was what Charles Evans was implicating, and there was a great earthquake that divided the U.S. and To two with bodies of water in the middle. So we see constant confirmation of each of these visions in other visions and other prophecies as well. I saw into Indiana that my dad was now living under Soviet occupation. In time, the world's militaries became a one world military, which gathered itself to the southern and northern borders of Israel. In its celebration of imminent victory over Israel, I saw the universe open and a heavenly army descend upon the military south of Israel and destroy it until it resembled a lake of blood. He doesn't say what happened to the army in the north, but one may assume that a similar thing happened there. He told me that Israel was attacked by pretty well all the forces of the world at that time that had gathered into one body to attack Israel from the north and from the south. This is from my book, Windows and the Prophecies of Isaiah. Because Isaiah's seven-part literary structure transforms the entire book of Isaiah into an apocalyptic prophecy, ancient Assyria's conquest of the then-known world typifies an end-time world conquest by an end-time Assyria. While well, it's also supported by literary structures in the book of Isaiah that transformed the entire book into an allegory of the end-time, as we've discussed previously. Historically, Assyria's brutal subjugation of nations and peoples involved the destruction of much of their agricultural infrastructure. Because Assyria's world conquest occurs in Isaiah's day, As I mentioned, Isaiah provides the best source for both its historical documentation and its prophetic transformation into an end-time scenario. So, if we want to know how it's going to happen in more details besides these visions that we've discussed, we can go to Isaiah and see what he says about it. From Isaiah 65. It all starts, of course, with the apostasy of God's people, as we have discussed in previous lectures. The apostasy of God's own covenant people, which a lot these saints are today, is the catalyst that causes a world war. That was the case when the ancient tri- ten tribes of Israel apostatized, as I mentioned before, and the Assyrians became a dominant world power and conquered the world in Isaiah's day. Then, a century and a half later, when the southern kingdom of Judah apostatized, the Lord empowered the Babylonians to become a world power, and they conquered the world. But it begins in the Lord's own land. As for you who forsake Jehovah and forget my holy mountain, who spread tables for luck and pour mixed wines for fortune. Now we can think of the gambling casinos in Las Vegas, but whenever Isaiah gives examples of that, it's only just an example of the kinds of things that are going on in society. It doesn't just depend on those one or two things that he mentions. I will destine you to the sword, all of you shall succumb to the slaughter. And of course, those are covenant curses, that happened when God's people break the terms of the covenant. For when I called, you did not respond. When I spoke, you would not give heed. When does the Lord call and when does he speak? In Isaiah's end-time scenario, he speaks when the servant is empowered and comes to give three years of warning to the world, beginning with the Lord's own people. He's the John the Baptist that prepares the way for the second coming of Christ, or the Enoch who who establishes the Zion to which the Lord can then come, because he can't come until there is a people Zion established, as in Enoch's day. Instead, you did what was evil in my eyes, you chose to do what was not my will. See, from Isaiah 66, Jehovah comes with fire, his chariots like a whirlwind, to retaliate in furious anger, to rebuke with conflagrations of fire. For with the fire and with his sword shall Jehovah execute judgment on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And of course, he uses the king of Assyria as his fire and as his sword, both the nuclear and the warfare through conventional means. Isaiah 18, woe to the land of buzzing wings beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends emissaries by sea and swift craft over the waters. They say, go speedily, you messengers, to a people perpetually on the move, a nation dreaded far and wide, a people continually infringing, whose rivers have annexed their lands." And the land beyond, the land of buzzing wings is, in Isaiah and also in other Hebrew prophets, is Egypt, the great superpower of of Isaiah's day, which is a a type or model of the great superpower of today, America. And when the nations from the north, the Assyrian alliance, Start encroaching upon other nations, like you saw Russia doing in Crimea recently, and now is doing to Ukraine. As you saw in Georgia, doing the same thing. And as the Chinese have done in different parts of their land, those nations are in the habit of encroaching upon others, and he likens it to a river or rivers, just flooding their banks and going over other, uh, other territory. Isaiah 34. Come near you nations and hear; pay attention you peoples, Let the earth give heat and all who are upon it, the world and all who spring from it. Jehovah's rage is upon all nations, his fury upon all their hosts. He has doomed them, consigned them to the slaughter. So the slaughter here is a common motif of the great destruction of the wicked in the end time. And the end of the world, as Joseph Smith defines it, is actually the destruction of the wicked. The destruction of the wicked is also at the same time the deliverance of the righteous, which is the Lord wants to do. And... The person who personifies the Lord's rage and fury is the king of Assyria. He's a personification of rage, like Hitler was in World War II, and a personification of fury. And you see that in the book of Isaiah, where he speaks, uh, also says in the book of Daniel, how he speaks great things against the Most High God in anger. Their slain shall be flung out, and their corpses emit a stench. Their blood shall dissolve in the mountains... Their fat decomposed on the hills. When the heavens are rolled up as a scroll and their starry hosts shed themselves upon a cord like withered leaves from a vine or shriveled fruit from a fig tree, when my sword drinks its fill in the heavens, it shall come down on Edom in judgment on the people I have sentenced to damnation. Now, as we discussed last time, Edom is another name for Esau, who is the brother of Jacob, who sold his birthright to Jacob for a mess of pottage. And he' is a type of the lord's covenant people in the end time who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, in other words for the for the idols of Babylon and forget all about their covenant relationship with the Lord and the privileges that constitutes, and also the obligation to minister the gospel to the world. It also fulfills things that Peter talks about when the heavens are rolled up as a scroll, and this is actually his source it's in the book of Isaiah where the starry hosts shed themselves, well, lucky not the actual stars, of course, were far away, but certainly, you know, asteroids, meteors, and no doubt weapons of mass destruction coming sent by missiles. From Second Kings, it also appears in the book of Isaiah, it says, You have heard, this is Hezekiah speaking in his prayer to Jehovah when the Assyrians surround Jerusalem, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, utterly destroying them. It was that with the Assyrian policy? And as, as we shall see, their idea is to depopulate the world. There's too many people in it, so they're going to depopulate so they can keep better control of the world that they conquer. This is from Windows, using flood imagery to depict Isaiah's end-time conquest of the world. Isaiah links this new flood to the old. By comparing the Assyrian arch tyrant in his alliance of nations to the sea in commotion, to river in flood, Isaiah draws on an ancient and recent mythology to tell us that the new flood is as devastating as the old and serves the same purpose. Beginning with his own people, Jehovah permits the powers of chaos to predominate until the world is cleansed of wickedness. Isaiah 8, Therefore, will my Lord caused to come up over them the great and mighty waters of the river, the king of Assyria in all his glory. Now, as I mentioned in one of the previous lectures, the king of Assyria, Isaiah paints him as a personification of sea and river, the powers of chaos that appear in the Baal myth. So he is a river. He is, it says here, he's also the sea in commotion, the river in flood, that just sweeps over everything in this great end-time world conquest, of which the ancient kings of Assyria were a type. He will rise up over all his channels and overflow all his banks, he will sweep into Judea, Judea being a code name for the promised land here today. He will sweep into Judea like a flood, and passing through, reach the very neck. His outspread wings will span the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, the name Emmanuel appears three times in the book of Isaiah, so you have to see that name in context. It's actually in context with two other sons, Isaiah's son, Meher Shalal Khashbaz, who represents the wicked, the name means hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil, signifying a covenant curse upon the wicked of the world, specifically upon the Lord's people. And the other son, Sha'ar Yeshuv, a remnant shall repent, meaning that there is a remnant of people that repents, who the scriptures identify as the house of Israel, the Jews, the Lamanites, and the Ten Tribes, when they renew their covenant with Jehovah and become a Zion people. So the land of Emmanuel, if, if it's this land, then it happens in, the ti- in this time period. This reference to Emmanuel is a reference to the end time, the invasion of the king of Assyria, of the promised land, our promised land, here today. Though nations form pacts, alliances, they shall be routed. Give heed all you distant nations, you may take courage in one another, or the arm of flesh, but you shall be in fear. You may arm yourselves with all kinds of the latest technology of weaponry, but shall be terrorized. Though you hold consultations, they shall come to naught." We see these consultations happening today, where the Prime Ministers of, of France and Germany have just recently met with Putin over the Ukraine crisis. and Putin is just sitting back there just loving it course, he's not going to change his mind about anything. He still has the same communist policy of two steps forward, one step back. He's just taking a little step backwards now just to appease them and the next thing you'll know he'll take two steps forward again. Before you know it, he's getting his way at every point. Though you make proposals, they shall not prove firm, God is with us. In fact, the Hebrew says "Emmanuel." Immanuel. But the Assyrians are saying, God is with us. They're claiming the moral high ground, as you've noticed in Putin's statement recently. If you're aware of the alternative news sites, you'll see that now they're claiming the moral ground and the Christians are corrupt. They're into all kinds of abominations and they feel justified to do what they're doing. Or at least they're using it as a rationale or excuse, kind of like the Lamanites did towards the Nephites. Isaiah 7. Again, Jehovah addressed Ahaz. This was when Assyria was encroaching upon the northern kingdom and upon the kingdom of Syria or Damascus, not Assyria, and said, Ask a sign for yourself from Jehovah your God, whether in the depths below or in the heights above. But Ahaz says, I will not, I will not put Jehovah to the test. So he was being self-righteous there. When you offer the sign from God... Please accept it, but don't necessarily ask for one, because that may not be appropriate. Then Isaiah said, take heed, O house of David. So not just this particular ruler, but the entire ruling dynasty, so to speak. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Must you also try the patience of my God? Notice now, he says in verse 10, ask a sign from your God. In verse 13, he says, my God, because you've obviously rejected your God, so, but he is my God. Therefore will my Lord give of, him, of himself give you a sign. The young woman with child will give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Now, Matthew compares this to Christ, says, well, Emmanuel is God with us. Correct, Matthew, but in context, it's not the case. In context, it's an end-time scenario and it has to be a sign that has meaning to Ahaz because this happens in his day. The sign that's given happens in his day. Then who is it that is born? The son of Emmanuel. Historically, it was King Hezekiah who was the savior of God's people when the Assyrians encroached upon Jerusalem and surrounded it, and the Lord delivered the people for the king's sake because the, the role of a king is that of a protector. And in his function as proxy savior, the Lord heard him because he kept the terms of the covenant The people kept his law, and he kept God's law. So the Lord was under obligation to deliver the people, as we discussed previously. Cream and honey will he eat? By the time he has learned to reject what is evil and choose what is good, and that happened in Hezekiah's day, when the Assyrians were encroaching upon Jerusalem, and people fled into the wilderness, and they they kind of said to your tents, Israel, and they survived out there on just what they could find. In other words, there was a call out, so to speak, and they went into the wilderness, and they were not under a covenant curse because it says, because they chose what is good, and they are given enough to eat, whereas those who don't go there don't have enough to eat and are overrun by the Assyrians. Cream and honey will he eat by the time he has learned to protect what is evil and choose what is good. But this is the food of nomads. You get it? not the food of the the plenty in the cities. But it's good enough. It keeps you alive, at least. But before the child learns to reject the evil and choose the good, the land whose two rulers you loathe shall lie forsaken. This is the son Emmanuel. And that happened in Hezekiah's day, as a child, when the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom. Jehovah will bring upon you and your people and your father's house a day unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, the day of the king of Assyria. Because here it is the case that the ten tribes who were led by the tribe of Ephraim, Jeroboam, Solomon's son's deputy, he led away the ten tribes, and so it's on the context of Ephraim which led the northern kingdom here. And the time of the king of Assyria, this did not happen in the time of Christ. So, the actual name, Emmanuel applies in context, in an end time context, to the Lord's servant of whom the Lord says elsewhere in the book of Isaiah he will be with his servant. I am with you. He will be with you. God is with us, those whom the servant leads to deliverance. So it all makes much better sense than what Matthew's trying to say in the New Testament, although any Messianic title can apply to Christ, of course, as well as to others such as King David or Joseph Smith or anybody else. In that day Jehovah will signal for the flies from the far rivers of Egypt, there you have the land of buzzing wings, and for the bees from the land of Assyria. Of course these represent people or armies. These flies and bees represent armies from the north and from the south. From the south from Egypt and from the north from Assyria in relation to the promised land. As we read earlier, they come through Alaska. Armies of the Russian alliance will come through Alaska here as well, as well as flying into the eastern border of the country. And they will also come from the south in other visions that have been seen through Mexico. And they will come and settle with one accord in the riverbeds of the prairie and rocky ravines by all ditches and waterholes. In other words, they'll swarm over everything. And that day will my Lord use a razor, hide at the river, the king of Assyria, he is the river, to shave your head and the hair of your legs and to cut off even your beard. What does that mean? Well, that is what they did to captives that they captured. They shaved their heads so that everybody could recognize that they were captives. And they, the hair of your legs is probably a euphemism so they also probably render them impotent. And to cut off even your beard, the beard is, is zakhan, the elders of Israel are called zakan, so it's the same word, so it also signifies that the leadership of the people is, is cut off. They get rid of the leadership and then the people are leaderless and they can control them better. And that day, that's when the call-out happens, as I mentioned, when people go into the wilderness In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and a pair of sheep. And because of their plentiful milk, men will eat the cream. All who remain in the land will feed on cream and honey. So that's the context in which the name Emmanuel is used. So by all means, put it in context. I'm not sure that Matthew is not aware that there were other levels of meaning because he, after all, was the evangelist. But hey, Matthew, there's a whole other side that we need to be aware of, right? Twenty-three. In that day, every plot of ground with a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of currency shall be bries and thorns. So, all now the land that's cultivated and now that's land that's lush is going to revert to wilderness. And in the book of Isaiah, the Lord reverses people's circumstances. The wilderness where the Lord's righteous people go, that turns into paradise, into a paradisical state, and the land that was paradisical, as it were, reverts to wilderness. It's a reversal of circumstances between the righteous and the wicked. It happens in the end time. And briars and thorns also of course represent the wicked themselves who overrun the land. So think of it that way as well. Men will go there with bows and arrows because the gangs will be out there killing anybody for food. For the whole land shall revert to wilderness, and on all hillsides cultivated by the whole, you will no longer go for fear of the briars and thorns, but they shall serve as a cattle range a terrain for sheep to tread down, eventually, keep things under control. Isaiah 5. Now, in the book of Isaiah, there are two end signs. One is the servant who prepares the way before Jehovah, before Jehovah's coming in power and glory, which is the second coming of Christ in power and glory. And he rallies the repentant people of the world to God's standard. He does so as the angel from the east and as the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah, as a Latter-day Enoch, or as the servant mentioned in Jacob's allegory of the Olive Tree, who grafts in the natural branches of the Olive Tree in the final grafting scenario. And there is also the other ensign, the king of Assyria, the Latter-day Antichrist, the ruler of the world. He raises an ensign to distant nations. This is Jehovah raising up the king of Assyria to destroy the wicked of his people. So the king of Assyria is the Lord's instrument to wreak this destruction upon the world and summons them from beyond the horizon forthwith they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows weary, nor does any stumble. They do not drowse or fall asleep. Their waist belts come not loose, nor their sandal thongs undone. We've discussed this before because Isaiah is comparing this really very disciplined army, the Assyrian Alliance, with the undisciplined state of the Lord's own covenant people. And every one of these items, weariness, stumbling, falling asleep, drowsing, and so forth, describes God's people in other parts of the book of Isaiah so you create these word links between the two, and one contrasts the other. Their arrows are sharp while their bows are strung. The tread of their war horses resembles flint. Their chariot wheels revolve like a whirlwind. They have the roar of a lion. They are aroused like young lions. Growling, they seize the prey and escape, and none comes to the rescue. So to be taken prey and by wild animals and so forth, who here symbolize this military, this military in all its power, is covenant curse. To be invaded by, by them is covenant curse. And someone tried to liken this to the army of missionaries going out. but That, as you can see, is totally ludicrous. And you have to kind of unlearn those things if you thought that in the past because it does not fit context by any means whatsoever. It Basically, it's just taking a scripture and applying any old wild interpretation to it and running with it. It kind of fulfills what Nephi said about people who interpret the scriptures out of context. They think they know of themselves. They don't check the scriptures. They don't search them. They don't connect with the Spirit to know if those things are true. But they publish it anyway. And so people pick up on that and they quote it and they reinforce it soon. Everybody believes that's what it was. He shall be stirred up. That is the king of Assyria. And how do you know that? Because the word stirred up, the verb, is a word linked to other parts of Isaiah where the king of Assyria stirred up against Jehovah. He shall be stirred up against them, the Lord's people, particularly the Lord's covenant people in that day, more than any other people. He has it in for them, kind of like Hitler had it in for the Jews and tried to destroy all of them. Even as the sea is stirred up, when the sea is in commotion or when there's tsunamis, and should one look to the land, thinking to escape somehow, that's among the wicked, there too shall be a distressing gloom, for the daylight shall be darkened by an overhanging mist. So basically they're banished into outer darkness in Isaiah's definition of outer darkness. Where the wicked go, eventually they don't last very long out there either. Isaiah 28. This addresses Ephraim of the Lord's people directly. My Lord has in store one mighty and strong. In Isaiah there are two mighty and strong, as I mentioned previously. One is the Lord's servant and one is his contemporary, the king of Assyria. Kind of like David and Goliath. They're both strong as a ravaging hailstorm sweeping down, or like an inundating deluge of mighty waters, he will hurl them, the Lord's people, the wicked of the Lord's people, to the ground by his hand. Hand is also a metaphor for the Lord's servant and for the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is the Lord's hand of punishment, the Lord's left hand, and the servant is the Lord's right hand, or right hand man. And He personifies the Lord's right hand who gathers up the elect and delivers them. So here again, the king of Assyria is likened to a new flood. The proud garlands of the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden underfoot. The proud garlands of the drunkards of Ephraim, which they wore thinking that, looking back to the past and their previous accomplishments, thinking that they were still relevant somehow today, so they were living in a state of delusion, thinking that those great victories could happen again in their day, but they're being unwilling to pay the price for those or to keep keep the laws that brought those great victories about in the past. And the fading wreaths, the crowns of glory on the heads of the opponent, so he's mocking them here, shall so be like the first ripe fruit before summer harvest he who sees it devours it the moment he has hold of it. And that would be the king of Assyria and his lions. Isaiah 10, hail the Assyrian the rod of my anger, he's a staff, my wrath in their hand. So he personifies all those things. Personifies God's anger, he's the rod of punishment, Staff of punishment, he personifies God's wrath and the Lord's left hand. I will commission him against the godless nation. That's why the Assyrians can say, "God is with us." God is with us. They feel something. They feel this empowerment from him that's over and above what you know what they could humanly do by themselves. I will commission him against the godless nation. That are, those are the apostates of God's people. His, covenant, his own covenant people have sunk into a, into a demoralized state. Appoint him over the people deserving of my vengeance. Now this is also, the to appoint is also what the Lord does of his servant, in the book of Isaiah. He appoints him personally. The people deserving of my vengeance, to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, to tread underfoot like mud in the streets. This is where uh, the name of Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Khashbaz, is fulfilled. Hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. Well, the Assyrians do that. and They do it to the Lord's own people. Nevertheless, it shall not seem so to him, to the king of Assyria, this shall not be what he has in mind. His purpose shall be to annihilate and to exterminate nations, not a few. He will say, Are not my commanders kings one and all? Kind of like Hitler and his cronies. Isaiah 13. Hark a tumult on the mountains as of a vast multitude. Hark up uproar among kingdoms as of nations assembling. The Lord of hosts is marshalling an army for war. So in the, in the context of an Assyrian alliance, or the Syrian conquest of the world in the end time, it is shown here to be an alliance of nations. And we can easily think who they might be today because we can see the events in the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah predicts them, lining up in the events that are happening in the world today. And if you're not sure about that, please, go to some conservative media outlets and read them. Become acquainted with it and you'll see. Uh, the liberal media will certainly not tell you any of this, because they have a certain way of painting the realities to not the things that are not realities. Lament for the day of the Lord is near, shall come as a binding blow from the Almighty. And the day of Jehovah, the day of the Lord, has been anticipated from, from the very beginning of the world. It was foreordained from the foundation of the world, that a time would come when the wicked would be destroyed. And guess what? We may be living in that very time. Then shall every hand grow weak and the hearts of all men melt. They shall be terrified in throes of agony. Seed with trembling like a woman in labor. Men will look at one another aghast, their faces set aflame. And as I mentioned before, everybody goes into labor at that time. The Lord's people, Babylon, the Lord goes into labor. And Zion goes into labor and brings forth a deliverer, the Lord's servant. The day of Jehovah shall come as a cruel outburst of anger and wrath the outburst of the king of Assyria, who personifies God's anger and wrath. To make the earth a desolation, the sinners may be annihilated from it. The stars and constellations of the heavens will not shine. When the sun rises, it shall be obscured, nor will the moon give its light. We have quoted this in the context of Isaiah's definition of Babylon, which is addressed in in verse 1 of this chapter 13. This is an oracle about Babylon. But here we see that it's about the sinners being annihilated it's about the whole world and the wicked being annihilated. I have decreed calamity for the world, punishment for the wicked. That's Isaiah's definition of Babylon. The world, the wicked, the earth, and the sinners. I will put an end to the arrogance of insolent men and humble the pride of tyrants. That's also Babylon. I will make mankind scarce of the fine gold because only the celestial level people will be saved or delivered. Men more rare than gold of Ophir, I will cause disturbance in the heavens when the earth is jolted out of place by the anger of Jehovah of hosts in the day of his blazing wrath. So cosmic cataclysm, as we saw before, is part of this scenario. Then, like a deer that is chased or a flock of sheep that no one rounds up, each will return to his own people and everyone flee to his homeland. Whoever is found shall be thrust through. All co- our shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their homes plundered, their wives ravished. See I stir up against them the Medes, who do not value silver or covet gold. This is the Assyrian alliance. And their bows will tear apart the young. They will show no mercy to the newborn. Their eye will not look with compassion on children. And the Assyrian advance, when he advances on the Lord's people and upon the world, it's very, very rapid. As we see here in a previous type from Isaiah's day. He advances on Ayat, passes through Migran. At Michmash, he marshals his weaponry. They cross over the pass, stopping over Naregiba. Rama is in a st- state of alarm. Gibeon of Saul is fleeing. Cry out, Udar of Galim. Hear her, Elisha. Answer her, Anatot. Adminah has moved out of the way. The of Gebim are in full flight. This same day, he will but pause at Nob and signal the advance against the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem, because that's his final goal. That's the grand goal that he has in mind. That 's why you see these visions we just read from angelic messages that they finally conquer the whole world and what 's the last one they conquer is or try to is Israel, or the lord 's people in Zion on this continent they too are unconquerable because the Lord is with them Isaiah ten but when my Lord has fully accomplished his work in Mount, in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will punish the king of Assyria for his notorious boasting and infamous conceit and the word I, the pronoun I, the first person pronoun appears seven times, showing his egocentricity. I have done it by my own ability and shrewdness. for I am ingenious, I have done away with the borders of nations, I have ravaged their reserves, I have vastly reduced the inhabitants, I have impounded the, pe- the wealth of peoples like a nest, and I have gathered up the whole world as one gathers abandoned eggs, not one flapped its wings or opened its mouth to utter a peep. He's giving a lot of credit to himself. So the Lord says, Shall an axe exalt itself above the one who hews with it? Jehovah is hewing with him the axe, or a saw vaunt itself over him who handles it, as though the rod wielded him who lifts it up, or the staff held up the one who is not made of wood. He's just wooden. That's all he is. Therefore, will the Lord Jehovah of hosts send a consumption into his fertile lands and cause a fire to flare up like a burning hearth to undermine his glory. The light of Israel will be the fire, and their holy one, the flame, and it shall burn up and devour his bribes and thorns in a single day. His brides and thorns, his wicked alliance. And the light of Israel is a metaphor for the Lord's servant, as well as for the Lord himself. So the Lord is personally involved, and also his servant is leading the armies of Israel. His choice forests and productive fields, oh, by the way, as King David did anciently, he was a type of the Lord's servant, he led the armies of Israel against their enemies. His choice forests and productive fields it will consume both life and substance. This is a metaphor for his people and his lands. Turning them into a rotting morass or, you know, it's the chaos motif. It's turning everything of his into, into a situation, a chaotic situation. And the trees left of his forest shall be so few a child could record them. Now the trees are people. It's a metaphor for people. The trees left, the word left is a Word link to the remnant of God's people that is left or that remains all through the book of Isaiah. So the word left is a word link. So the trees left of his forest or his people or his land or his nation, who would they be? Because anciently the ten tribes were taken captive into Assyria, and in an end-time scenario, the, the last ten tribes of Israel or remnants of them come out of latter-day Assyria, come out of end-time Assyria, and are delivered to Zion. They're brought by the 144,000 and taken to Zion, become the people of Zion in the end time that welcomes Jehovah's coming to the world in glory. And who's the child that records them? Well, it's the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant actually sees that all these names are recorded as well. And this is talking about the king of Assyria after he conquers the world and surrounds Jerusalem and it's threatening Jerusalem, or where the Lord's people are. And this is a type of of the end time as well, because there are situations going to happen where his armies surround the Lord's people, Lord's elect, righteous people, completely, just like they did in King Hezekiah's day. And so it's a test for those who are surrounded and laid siege to, as it was to the people in King Hezekiah's day. What are they going to do? Yield to fear and go out to these Syrians who are, to kill them, or are they going to stay where they are and trust in the Lord God and in their king? So the Lord says to him, "Whom have you mocked and ridiculed? Against whom have you raised your voice? When he's mouthing off against the Lord's people, lifting your eyes to high heaven against the Holy One of Israel? When you mouth off against the Lord's elect, you're mouthing off against Him. By your servants you have blasphemed my Lord. You thought on account of my vast tree, I have conquered the highest mountains." A metaphor for nations. The farthest reaches of Lebanon, or the elite areas of the world. I have felt its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, meaning, again, the elite peoples of the world, because these trees in Palestine were mighty oaks and mighty cypresses. I've reached its loftiest summit, its finest forest, that's now when he's surrounding Jerusalem, as we saw in his his rapid advance. And then they reach the very neck, which leaves the head, which is. Where the Lord's elect people are gathered. I have dug wells and drunk of foreign waters. With the soles of my feet I have dried up all Egypt's rivers, rivers of people or armies, that is, in the great superpower of the world, a type of America today. Have you not heard how I ordained this thing long ago, when on days of old I planted? The Lord speaking. Now I have brought it to pass. You were destined to demolish fortified cities, turning them into heaps of rubble. While their timorous inhabitants shrank away in confusion, becoming as wild grass transiently green, or like weeds on a roof that scorch before they grow up, because these people really spiritually turned into weeds and wild grass, they became worthless. They were like the tares mixed with the wheat. But I know where you dwell and your comings and goings, and how stirred up you are against me. There is a, There is a word link to the word "stirred up" in chapter five, where the sea is stirred up. And he personifies the sea, and here he is, stirred up against the Lord. Kind of like Hitler was, he was an anti-Semite Semite, an anti-God, of course. And because of your snortings and bellowings against me, now he's likening him to a wild beast. Because as you are recreated, as I mentioned, closer to God's image and likeness, you begin to resemble the Lord, and when you are decreated because you choose evil then you begin to resemble animals and wild beasts, which have mounted up to my ears, kind of like the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah, mounted up to the Lord's ears, and then the Lord came and intervened and delivered Lot. I will put my ring in your nose and my bit in your mouth and turn you back by the way you came. Isaiah 10, thus says my Lord Jehovah of hosts, O my people who inhabit Zion. Now remember who they are. This now is a, is a righteous category of people. Be not afraid of the Assyrians, though they strike you with the rod or raise their staff over you, as did the Egyptians. So, this, these are people—not the elect. These are people of the Zion Jerusalem category, who don't go into the who don't go in the Exodus into the wilderness to safety, but they're left out there. But still, even those people will survive. The Lord will lead them through to protect them indirectly, not directly as He protects the elect. And of course the rod and the staff here that's striking and smiting them, that is the king of Assyria whom the Lord appointed as his rod and staff to punish the wicked. Though they strike you with the rod or raise their staff over you as did the Egyptians, for my anger will very soon come to an end and my wrath will become their undoing. So again the Lord's anger and wrath are the king of Assyria himself. He personifies those things. But you're going to get so angry and so wrathful that he's going too far. And the moment he does that and tries to destroy the Lord's elect, the Lord is going to come out in defense of them and put an end to the king of Assyria. See how this is a perfect plan that the Lord is working out? He lets the wicked do their thing, and then the elect have to rise above the wickedness and prove valiant in conquering evil. They have to suffer the persecution from the wickedness. The wicked are basically condemning themselves when they start persecuting the righteous and putting them to death as it was in the Book of Mormon scenario. And in all past scenarios where this kind of thing comes to a head. And so the wicked are actually helping the righteous rise to a higher spiritual level and when they then attack and threat the, the Lord's elect then the covenant curses of the covenant that the Lord has with his elect, those covenant curses come upon their enemies. So everything has to come to a head as we've covered before. It has to come to this head we have extreme wickedness and extreme righteousness. And then the great end time reversal of circumstances can happen. The Jehovah of hosts will raise the whip against them. That is a metaphor for the Lord's servant. He's like a latter day Gideon who overthrew the Midianites. Remember the Gideon scenario with the Midianites? And how many? 180,000 Midianites and Amalekites? Something like that. As when he struck the Midianites at the rock of Oreb, his staff is over the sea, and he will lift it over them, as he did to the Egyptians. Now, the Lord's servant is also a staff and a rod, so the Lord is going to empower the righteous staff, or the rod, the Lord's servant, his right hand, over the king of Assyria, over this power of chaos, the Antichrist. Harking back to Moses, when Moses put his hand or staff over the Red Sea, and the Red Sea, you know, became dry land, that allowed the Israelites to come over to safety. So this scenario is repeating itself in the end time where the Lord empowers his servant with power over the king of Assyria who is kind of like a latter-day pharaoh of Egypt as well because he conquers the land of Egypt. And that day their burdens, the burdens of their captivity that the Assyrians impose, they do what Hitler did. They put him to work in concentration camps You know building military weapons or something. and that day their burdens shall be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke removed from your neck. The yoke that wore away your fatness shall by fatness wear away. So the king of Assyria is also the yoke. He personifies the yoke, the heavy burdens that he lays upon the Lord's people of the Zion-Jerusalem category, the terrestrial people, not the Silas. Isaiah 14. The King of Assyria speaking, or the King of Babylon in chapter 14, but that is a title that kings of Assyria assumed when they conquered Babylon. That happened in Isaiah's day. So it's one of the same. It's nuanced differently because one is emphasized the political or military aspect, and one the other name, the King of Babylon, emphasizes more the spiritual, the idea of the King of Babylon as a demi-god. Whereas the other King of Assyria more emphasizes more the idea that he's a military, a military conqueror. You said in your heart, "I will rise in the heavens, and set my throne above the stars of God. I will seat myself in the mount of assembly of the gods, in the utmost heights of Safon, or the north. I will ascend above the altitude of clouds. I will make myself like the Most High." We covered this in previous uh, lectures, but there was in the context of exalting yourself and then being humiliated. Here it is in the context of world conquest. And he likely goes up to a space station, that space station, perhaps it's there now, and rules the world from up there, as it says in other prophetic books. He rules those on earth from up high. He goes up high. Of course, they didn't say space station, but we have it today, so it becomes clear, as I said, the events of today are lining up to fulfill what Isaiah says. But you have been brought down to Sheol, or the spirit world, prison, to the utmost depths of the pit, to the pit of dissolution, where one experiences the second death, the death of the spirit, not just of the body. Those who catch sight of you stare at you wondering, because the Lord allows people on higher levels to see below them, but they can never see above them until they get there. That's in the ascension of Isaiah when you read that. Stare at you wondering, is this the man who made the earth shake and kingdoms quake? Who turned the world into a wilderness, demolishing its cities, permitting not his captives to return home? So in the end, he is humiliated, and his alliance of nations is, is bested, is overthrown. Woe to the many peoples in an uproar who rage like the raging of the seas. Again, part of this new flood. Tumultuous nations in commotion like the turbulence of mighty waters. So just as he rages against God and his people, so they do. And you see that in the Middle East today. Who is raging against America and against Israel today? I mean, take a look at the news. It's just, it's happening. These guys are not going to be put down. I assure you, no matter what America does. (laughs) Nations may roar like the roaring of great waters, but when he rebukes them, they will be far away they will be driven before the wind like chaff on the mountains or like whirling dust in a storm. In other words, they are going to be reduced to chaos, to non-entities. At evening time shall be the catastrophe after the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. At evening time literally and also at the end of the day of judgment shall be the catastrophe, their disaster, and before morning they shall be no more, before the morning the dawning of the millennium. This is the lot of those who plunder us The fate of those who despoil us. That is the Assyrian alliance. Hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. From Isaiah 41, be not fearful, for I am with you. And there you have the with him, with them, Emmanuel. God is with them. And why is he with them? See now. And there is, of course, always the option to fear. And this is one of the lessons of the end time is to put away the fears and focus and trust solely upon Christ to be your deliverer. It's a hard thing with all the vicissitudes of life to always be trusting solely on the Lord. Some non-members do this better than us. You hear stories of it and with amazing results. So let's see if we can also follow that pattern. Be not fearful, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. That's your covenant God. Your God, his people, covenant formula. I will strengthen you, I will also succor you, and uphold you with my righteous right hand. And there is the key when God is, becomes with his people, is when the Lord's servant fulfills his mission. The Hebrew actually says, with righteousness my right hand. And righteousness is a name of the servant. chapter 41, verse 2, He's called righteousness because he personifies righteousness. He's the Lord's right hand of deliverance. See, all who are enraged at you shall earn shame and disgrace. Your adversary shall come to naught and perish. Should you look for those who contend with you, you shall not find them. Whoever wars against you shall be reduced to nothing. And even whatever weapon is divided against you shall not succeed, as Isaiah says elsewhere. Therefore thus says Jehovah concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not enter this city or shoot an arrow here, that is, upon the elect. He shall not advance against it with armor or erect siege works against it. By the way he came he shall return. He shall not enter this city, says Jehovah. I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that David is the end-time servant because his name is David. And this city are those elect whom he gathers. It can also be stakes of the city. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, because they are keeping his law and he's keeping God's law. And that's the formula formula for divine protection. And of course, in Hezekiah's day, it was Hezekiah who was the proxy savior under the terms of the Davidic covenant that Isaiah is harking back to here. So all of these are considerations when you read this in an end-time context. It is under the terms of the Davidic covenant. It is because of a servant named David. And the Lord is going to deliver them just as he delivered Lot from Sodom for Abraham's sake. The Lord remembered Abraham and took Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Then the angel of Jehovah went out and slew 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when men arose in the morning, there lay all their dead bodies. And that was, you know, that was seen in that vision that we quoted from the angelic messages where the Lord's armies overthrew the armies of the world that had gathered against Israel, as they would also on this continent wherever God's elect gather. Wherever there are cities of refuge, this scenario will repeat itself in one form or another. Isaiah 31 Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man, a sword not of mortals shall devour them. Before that sword they shall waste away, and their young men melt. Their captains shall expire in terror, and their officers shrink from the ensign. That's the Lord's righteous ensign, the servant, who is also an ensign, but probably is the righteous, says Jehovah whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And the Lord's servant is also a fire as the king of Assyria is, a fire and a sword. So is he. In that day, from Isaiah 28, shall Jehovah of hosts be as a crown of beauty and wreath of glory to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who repulse the attack at the gates. So these are the armies of Israel, or the armies of the Lord's people, very likely terrestrial armies, who eventually also assist in overthrowing the Assyrian alliance. Because they are destroyed in two ways, one through direct divine intervention, as we saw, and one in mortal combat. As we see here in Isaiah 30, Jehovah will cause his voice to resound and make visible his arm, descending in furious rage, with flashes of devouring fire, explosive discharges and pounding hail. Well, he did this to others, so now it's going to be done to him. At the voice of Jehovah, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken, they who used to strike with the rod." The rod was the king of Assyria. Now, the Lord's voice, and, um, in verse 30 and 31, is also the Lord's servant. He acts as the voice, or mouth, of the Lord. And so when he utters his voice, he has power over the Assyrian alliance. And he's also the Lord's arm, his arm of deliverance, as we see elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, for example. At every sweep of the staff of authority, and this is the servant now, he's the Lord's staff of authority, at every sweep of the staff of authority, when Jehovah lowers it upon them, they will be fought in mortal combat. Isaiah 14. Jehovah of hosts made an oath saying, As I foresaw it, so shall it happen. As I planned it, so shall it be. I will break Assyria in my own land, trample them underfoot on my mountains. Their yoke shall be taken from them, their burden removed from their shoulders. These are things determined upon the whole earth. This is the hand upraised over all nations. For what Jehovah of hosts has determined, who shall revoke? When his hand is upraised, who can turn it away? Well, first is the, is the great day of his power, the king of Assyria, as the Lord's hand. And nobody can stay his hand unless the Lord permits it. And then is the day of the, of the Lord himself um, implemented and uh, instituted by the Lord's servant, his right hand, who is also upraised over the king of Assyria. As we see here in this, in this chapter, chapter 11. In that day the sprig of Jesse, the sprig meaning the root or the, the graft or the sprig is a little... Little shoot. So this is the beginning phase of his mission, the early phase of his mission. Later on, he grows into a full-fledged branch, and he represents the Lord's elect. So they are just a little sprig also, and they grow into the full-blown branch that bears good fruit in this allegory in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And in verse 10, it tells us more about it. In that day, the sprig of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the people, so we see that he is the ensign there, as well as the king of Assyria is the ensign that rallies the wicked, He's the ensign that rallies the righteous, shall be sought by the nations, and his rest shall be glorious. Shall be sought by the nations, or rather, the repentant peoples of all nations, not, all, not everybody in the world. And his rest shall be glorious, because he attains the Lord's rest, which is the fullness of his glory. And that day will my Lord raise again, raise His hand, to reclaim the remnant of His people. Those who shall be, so this is the remnant now, who shall be left out of Assyria. That's the ten tribes, Egypt, that would be Latter-day Saints, in in the nation of and others, in in the in the great superpower of the world, Pathras, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, the islands of the sea, many other places. The elect of God is scattered throughout the earth. As we see also in the Book of Mormon, where Nephi saw that, that the members of the Church of the Lamb were few, but they were all over the world. And so we, we see that here. He will raise the ensign to the nations and assemble the exiled of Israel. He will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. So here we see the close synonymity of verses 11 and 12. Verse 10 establishes the idea that the servant, speak of Jesse, Jesse was the father of King David. And Jesse here is a code name that we won't get into. But we see that he is the ensign, the righteous ensign, whose rest shall be glorious. He enters the Lord's rest on this earth, not just in the next world. We see that he's the ensign that appears also in verse 12. There the Lord raises his son, so the Lord is the one who does it, not somebody else. He doesn't raise himself. He's appointed and chosen of the Lord, as Isaiah says over and over again. And he usually says that, Isaiah does says that in the context of Jehovah describing himself as the creator of the heavens and the earth. And then he talks about raising his servant or appointing appointing his servant or, or sustaining his servant and so forth. So... We see that verse 12, the raising of the ensign, is parallel with the raising of the hand in verse, 12, verse 11, in a synonymous parallel. And then the remnant is left out, you know, is gathered out of all these countries in verse 11, which is synonymous with the the exile of scattered of Judah, coming from the four directions of the earth in an end time exodus. So. This implies, then, Isaiah is establishing the idea here that that the Lord's hand is also the ensign, because they're in a synonymous parallel, and this is how Isaiah does it. So go back to it later and see the synonymous parallelism of the ensign with the Lord's hand, and you'll get the idea. And the same way with the king of Assyria, he's also the Lord's hand, the left hand of punishment, and he's the ensign. He's an ensign to the nations also. So in that day, the same chapter 11, when the servant does his thing, fulfills his mission, and is empowered of God, Ephraim's jealousy shall pass away, and the hostile ones of Judah be cut off. Because Ephraim signifies the northern kingdom, and Judah is the southern kingdom, and the Jews feel like the, the, one, the only ones that they've been carrying the ball all these years. They've been persecuted, used the world's scapegoats, and because of their identity as Jews, as House of Israel people. Whereas the ten tribes and others of the House of Israel you kind of lost their identity and assimilated into the Gentiles. So some in Judah are upset when others claiming to be of the House of Israel come forth in the end time and the Jews say, Oh no, you're not. We're Israel. You're not. And they'll have to prove themselves as Israelites. And when they do, then the hostile ones of Judah will be cut off if they're still hostile, and the rest of Judah will accept them, of course. And Ephraim is jealous of Judah because the Jews were the ones who maintained their ethnic integrity and their their allegiance to Jehovah all these centuries of exile. So all of that's going to be cured, as happened in King David's day, because he was the one to, after King Saul died, to reunite the Northern Kingdom with the Southern Kingdom, and as it says in the Book of Ezekiel, they shall be one in My hand. Which hand? Well, the servant's hand. That's he's he's latter day David who unites Israel as David did anciently. And that Ezekiel thirty-seven chapter has also been mis you know misinterpreted. If you follow what it says in the entire chapter and not just zero in on one verse and run with it, just take the trouble to look at it in context, will you? You'll see when the prophet asks, what does this mean? The Lord tells him what it means. Those two nations will no more be two nations, but there will be one nation in the hand of the Lord. And one king shall be king over them. So, now together when they reunite, they will form a strong army. They will soup on the Philistine flank, or the Palestinian, same word in Hebrew, if you like, toward the west, and together plunder those to the east. They will take Edom and Moab at at hand's reach, with a reaching out of the hand, that is, the Lord's servant. When he reaches his hand out, he leads their armies, and the Ammonites will obey them. Jehovah will dry up the tongue of the Egyptian sea, or Egypt now being in Assyria's hands, and the sea being the power of chaos, He personifies by his mighty wind as he did anciently of the Red Sea. He will extend his hand over the river as Joshua did over the river Jordan and smite it into seven streams to provide a way on foot. When the Israelites entered the promised land, they went over the Jordan River on dry land also. So, this is talking about the end time exodus of God's people out of Assyria and out of all the world to the Promised Land, or the safe places in the Promised Land where Zion is established. And there shall be a pathway out of Assyria for the remnant of his people who shall be left. There again the remnant, left is the the remnant, as it was for Israel when it came up from the land of Egypt. So a great end-time exodus, a new exodus, out of all the world this time, and as Jeremiah says, greater than by far overshadowing the ancient exodus out of Egypt so that they will no more say the Lord God who brought his people out of Egypt, but out of all the countries wheresoever he scattered them, which will be said at the millennial Passover feast that will then be had commemorating these very events. Isaiah 14. This is the great lament. starts with the word how, as the Book of Lamentation does, and as Mormon is lamenting the destruction of the Nephites, he says, how could this have happened? You fair ones, how, how, how? And so forth. How the tyrant, the king of Assyria, has met his end and tyranny ceased. Jehovah has broken the staff of the wicked, the rod of those who ruled. So here you see the connection, the word links between the rod and the staff, describing the king of Babylon, which also describes the king of Assyria, which is just solidifying the idea that the king of Babylon is also the king of Assyria. Him who. With an erring blow, he struck down the nations in anger, who subdued, subdued peoples in his wrath by relentless oppression. Again, the terms anger and wrath are things that he personifies. So again, it's the same person, the end-time Antichrist. Now the whole earth is at rest and at peace. There is jubilant celebration. So, you don't remember the celebration at the end of the Second World War, but I do. And it was... It was over the top. It was wild. It was after five years of warfare, six years. Uh, finally, it was over, and the whole world was just relieved and breathed a sigh of relief. And there was celebration of all kinds of wild parties. And what happened then? Well, they got back into their bad habits again. So, hopefully, that won't happen this time because it's the millennial age now, or going to be.